As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1954, director Billy Wilder and star Audrey Hepburn gave the world a touching rom-com that dives deeper than expected. In 2023, we try a scotch whiskey that's a mouthful of a name, but is it a mouthful of flavor? (laughs) The film is Sabrina. The whiskey is Johnny Walker, Blender's Batch, and Wine Cask Blend. (laughs) I literally almost started halfway through that. (laughs) And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, Brad is a milestone week in season seven. Bum, bada, bum. It's the first time we've been able to record in person in, in season seven. person, baby. So we are coming to you from Brad's patio. That's right. In beautiful Delaware, Ohio. Mm. What, a, what a great place, Bob. I'm telling you, man. You should move here. <laughs> is this where we make the big Bob should move pitch? The, I, 100%. If you don't move here, then I'm not going to do the podcast anymore. Wow. All right, so it's a milestone episode because it is the last <laughs> the Film and Whiskey episode, folks. <laughs> You're welcome, Film and Whiskey Nation. So today we are rounding out our mini-series of films by director Billy Wilder. We started with Sunset Boulevard. Last week we looked at Stalag 17. And this week we are looking at Sabrina. So we did back-to-back-to-back William Holden Billy Wilder collaborations. Also back-to-back-to-back movies that start with the letter S. Oh, wow. I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah this is why you pay me the big This is box. why this is a milestone episode. <laughs> so many things <laughs> happening today. <laughs> All right. So we, we kind of talk, talked about this a little bit, you know, both with Sunset Boulevard and Stalag 17, that Wilder is a very versatile writer and director. And his his films span from really bleak film noir to really biting kind of satire to kind of frothy rom-coms. I think that it would be wrong to call this movie a frothy rom-com because it does have some kind of darker Billy Wilder undercurrents running through it. Multiple attempted suicides. No, no no big deal. Yeah, no. Moving on. As you do. (laughs) But I have to say, I I really enjoyed the overall palate cleanser that this movie was. Yeah. After Sunset Boulevard, I think Stalag 17 had a had a nice feel to it and it was decently funny but there there was still some elements of it that didn't quite work for me uh sabrina is an incredible movie bob yeah here's i'm not gonna bury the lead on this one brad i have only seen this movie i think maybe once before and i think it kind of gets lost in the shuffle in my mind of like 
40s and 50s romantic comedies, especially since it comes just a year after Audrey Hepburn's debut performance in Roman Holiday. And I think I've kind of confused these two movies a little bit in my mind. And so it was really cool to revisit this one after, I don't know how long it's been, almost 20 years probably since I've seen this movie. Mm-hmm. Here's my my big leadoff question, Brad. Is this a perfect movie? Ooh. Because I watched this movie and I have pretty much no notes on the script. And, you know, the, I'll get into talking about Wilder's direction and the camera work, but this is right up there for me with The Apartment and Double Indemnity as maybe my new, one of my new favorite Wilder films. Bob, that could not make me any happier because this is a film that I watched growing up multiple times, have always really, really loved, and was so excited to see that you had put on the list for this season. Like, like this, this would feel like if you just put charade randomly in the podcast, mm. I would be like freaking out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, it took me forcing you to let me choose half the movies for a season to get that on the list. <laughs> it's okay. Not bitter about it. But I'm very glad that you chose Sabrina because this is a daggone good movie. It is so good. And before we get into talking about Sabrina, I want to say, Brad, you know, every once in a while we talk about what seems like my very scattershot approach to putting movies on the list. <laughs> Would you like to hear a little bit of the film and whiskey uh, selection strategy? Uh, that I totally know all about because I'm half of the show. Yeah. I mean, the people need to know. But oh, yes. This is about democracy. All right. <laughs> So we've gotten through, I would say, a majority of the movies that are on the American Film Institute's top 100 list at this point. We still have some left to knock out. But as I look at the movies that we really still need to tackle, that I would consider like anyone who watches classic movies needs to see these movies. We're getting to a point where there's like a random one by this director and a Mm -hmm. random one with this star. And it's either like, let's schedule a whole season of just completely random movies or let's try to put some semblance around this. And I think with Sabrina and movies like Stalag 17, they're not on the AFI list, but they're helping us round out what I think would be a good, you know, program of movies for anyone to see by a director. And in a lot of cases, these are movies that are kind of hovering around the bottom of the IMDb top 250. Like it would be really cool if we got, got you know, at some point got around to watching most of the top 250 list. Mm-hmm. So like this is a really well-regarded movie. It's not often talked about among Wilder's best, but I think it absolutely deserves to be discussed here. Yeah, and, and like you said, the the strongest point of this film is the script. And then when you layer in Wilder's willingness to allow silence to happen in his movie, where, you know, there's a certain point at the start of the film where I, I looked at my friend Steven was like, dude, how many modern directors would allow there to be four to five minutes of their movie happen without a single line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, and yet Wilder does that two or three times throughout this movie to great effect. Absolutely. So I, I yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm excited to get into it. All right. Well, let's get into it then. And that starts with our first segment of the day, America's favorite segment, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take. With this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie we have just watched. And it's usually a movie that he has just watched for the first time. Now, as we know, this was not his first time seeing Sabrina. 
Brad, how many times do you think you've seen this so far? This was probably somewhere in the five to seven range. Oh, nice. Would be my guess. Because I, I know, I, I remember watching it in my mid-20s with my wife. And I probably watched it three or four times as a kid. Mm-hmm. So probably in that five, six, maybe seven times area. That's putting it up there in like the Brad G rewatch yeah. all time list. Yeah, it's it's nowhere near secondhand lions, but you know. <laughs> I mean, what can be? <laughs> what could be near <laughs> what that? What can touch the greatness that is? I'm, I'm going to guess that I've seen secondhand lions 20 times. Wow. <laughs> I think the director of Secondhand Lions hasn't even seen Secondhand Lions. <laughs> no, he probably hasn't. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we know that Brad knows this movie inside and out now, and that means that it's time for him to break down the plot. Brad, you have 60 seconds on the clock to break this down. And again, this is a spoiler-filled discussion of the movie Sabrina. If you have not seen Sabrina, I would highly recommend checking it out because this might be I, even at the end of the season, Brad, I might recommend this movie higher than any other movie. Mm, that's just who who does this movie not work for? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Maybe people who don't like capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, commies, you got to check out at this point. But for everyone else, Brad, you have one minute on the clock and go. The film Sabrina centers around a family, an extraordinarily wealthy family called the Larrabees. And their chauffeur's daughter named Sabrina. She has her entire life been interested in the younger son of the Larrabee clan, uh, played by William Holden. And she goes off to France to become a a chef. And when she comes back, the William Holden takes notice of her. But his notice is not necessarily welcomed by the family as they're trying to marry him off for... Uh, political and power gain as they're trying to do a merger to make a lot of money. So with this marriage on the rocks, Humphrey Bogart, the older brother, begins to take Sabrina out on some dates, trying to get her to fall in love with him so that he could ship her off back to France. Ten seconds. And get William Holden back on track to marry the girl that he picked for her. But, as usual, things go awry. Mm. That's Sabrina, folks. That's it, baby. Brad, where do you want to start? Because I I have nothing but praise for this movie. Like, I'm just going to be a broken record. This movie works perfectly for me. I am shocked that I have not revisited it in so long because it is just it works like gangbusters. And I have many nice things to say about Billy Wilder and about his actors. So let's go wherever you want, man. Yeah, let's start. I mean, you already pointed it out. Let's start with the script and then move into the performances. So this script is co-written by Billy Wilder and two other people because it is an adaptation of a play called Sabrina Fair. This was a pretty successful play on Broadway uh, that Wilder then adapted. And it's hard for me to know, Brad, because I've never seen or read the script to Sabrina Fair, what parts of this script are completely Wilder inventions and which ones are not. But from a structural standpoint, I think this is like you could teach the structure of this in Romantic Comedy 101. Like it is, it has everything you want from multiple love interests and a love triangle to complicating issues in the second half of the movie where the girl gets heartbroken and the guy has to win her back and everything from dramatic moments to really lighthearted, almost slapstick comedy. It just, the way it unfolds, even before we get into the dialogue and the funny moments, I want to talk about the structure of it because I don't know that I would change a single thing about the way this movie is structured. I was going to say, the only movie we've talked about on this level in the in the rom-com space would be When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. 
And I, I guess I'd, I'd ask, would you say that in a similar sense, like it feels like when Harry Met Sally set the formula for modern rom-coms, mm. would you say that this did the same in 1954? I mean, it's hard to say that because there's been such a long history of romantic comedies, like even before this movie. But I think, you know, it's kind of like when they talk about the history of punk rock and it's like the Ramones invented it and the Sex Pistols perfected it and the Clash popularized it. I think this might just be the point where the rom-com script gets perfected in classic Hollywood mm. because you know, like, there was even elements of it for me where I was like, oh, I think that Billy Wilder is referencing Shakespeare here. I think that this is like a Romeo and Juliet when she finds the two tickets to the ship. And it really reminded me of the ending of Romeo and Juliet yeah. where, you know, one of them wakes up and sees the other's poison and then they drink the poison and then the other one wakes up and they stab themselves. It's just like there's a complicating issue here surrounding this kind of MacGuffin thing that you only get in those kind of classic Shakespeare dramas and comedies. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Shakespeare because I feel like this almost has a case of mistaken identity mm -hmm. feel to it, even though ev like everybody knows who everybody is. But the when Humphrey Bogart kisses Audrey Hepburn and like tells her like, well, we're, we're just keeping it in the family, see? Like... What was that? <laughs> Is that your Bogart? That I think that was more of a uh, um, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart being Edward G. Robinson? <laughs> yes. Okay. That's what, I, sure. that's what I was shooting for. Thank you. That was, you nailed it, man. Uh, when he's telling her that they want to keep it in the family, it almost turns into this like, I'm in love with David, the younger son, and yet I have to put up with the older brother for a time in order to get to him. Mm -hmm. And it... It just has a very deeply Shakespearean feel about it. And I think that's what makes it such a classic that can stand the test of time. Well, I think at its heart, you know, the, the obvious read on this movie is what if we took the Cinderella story and put it in 1950s America? And it's not that it follows the same beats as Cinderella, obviously, but it's like you start off with the, you know, the poor, quote unquote, like waifish girl who mm -hmm. then goes off and gets prettified at the ball and comes back. And then now everybody wants her. Right. But what I love about this movie is that it doesn't follow those beats. And the majority of the movie is, OK, what happens after Sabrina comes back from Paris? Mm -hmm. Now everyone's interested in her. And I think if there is a flaw to the movie, I wish there had been just slightly more like, uh, I don't know, not want to say condemnation, but I wish that they had delved a little bit deeper into why does everybody only want me now, now that I'm pretty, yeah. now that I'm because Sabrina so willingly dives back into wanting to be with David and putting up with the entire Larrabee family's BS that it, it's almost like we as the audience are worried for her because she is so clearly disregarding it. But the fact that it never really comes back to bite her in a in a meaningful way. I do wish that Wilder had gone just a little bit more into his like Sunset Boulevard to implicate those rich people in this a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that he sets Audrey Hepburn up for failure in the sense that Sabrina is such oh, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to apply 2023 standards to a movie in 1954. But she just she just is a silly young child mm -hmm. who wants to kill herself over her love interest. Right. And even when she comes back after two years in, in the quote unquote world and learning about herself and like growing and maturing and then falls immediately back into her bad habits, if mm -hmm. you will. 
And I think that for me is the weakest part of the film that I, I wish she had a little more gumption and chutzpah by the end, you know, when she comes back and it stands up for herself. But I, I don't know, man. And even the way William Holden plays it, it's almost as if she cast a spell on him. And so there's certain parts of his role that feel slapsticky. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure how I feel it fits with the overall tone of the movie, especially when you compare it to Humphrey Bogart, who just looks angry that anything <laughs> is not making him money. So here's the thing. Like, I feel like our read on the script is bleeding into our read on the performances. But I want to go back just for a second to what you're saying about William Holden, because what happens with his character, I think, is pretty emblematic with the script, which is that it has a lot of big reveals about the characters, but it never portrays them as like, aha, it's a big reveal. It comes out very organically. And I think for me, a lot of those reveals work really well. But with William Holden's character in particular, your read on him as a member of the audience for the first, say, hour of the movie is that he's just a playboy and that mm-hmm. he treats every woman as disposable and he's just kind of banging his way across Long Island. <laughs> and what you come to find out about him is that he's actually just a hopeless romantic and he falls in love too easily and he's been married too many times as a result of that, not because their marriage is of convenience. And in fact, they're very inconvenient for his family. And what I wish they had done with his character a little bit more is really underline and emphasize he is not a bad guy. He is not. I mean, he looks like a playboy, but it's because he's actually as much of a silly romantic as Audrey Hepburn's character is. Mm, yeah. And I don't know that that's necessarily apparent on the surface unless you like really pay attention to that one kind of crucial scene where he gets cornered by his dad and his brother and they're trying to get him to stop seeing Sabrina. I, I mean, I think it's also kind of revealed at the end of the film when he returns to the board meeting because he's such a hopeless romantic that he finally kind of sees outside of himself for a moment and goes, oh, holy crap, like my brother has fallen in love with this beautiful young woman. I'm going to help him accomplish that in any way that I can. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the moment of redemption for him where you, you realize, like you said, he's not necessarily doing it just because he wants to get laid. He's doing it because he genuinely is, yeah, hopeless romantic. That's the best way of putting it. Okay, before we dive into the performances in earnest, I want to keep talking about this script a little bit because Billy Wilder is known for having just fantastic, like if his scripts were an article, they'd have the best pull quotes ever because there's Mm -hmm. just so many great one-liners. And this movie is just full of moments that made me laugh out loud. I thought some of the the one-liners in this movie, whether they were written by Wilder or if they came from the original play, I thought they were just absolutely perfect. And Brad, I'm wondering what lines in particular stood out to you? Oh, man. Uh, I love when she's in Paris and the the older gentleman who makes a perfect souffle tells her, you know, he guesses that she is unhappily in love. And he says something along the lines of like a woman who's happily in love. She burns the souffle. But the woman unhappily in love, she forgets to turn on the oven. <laughs> it's just it's just such a clever line that I that really sticks with me. You know, for me, the more I think about it, the more I realize that most of the lines that worked perfectly for me come out of Bogart's mouth. And I don't think Bogart really gets enough credit as a comedic actor because he didn't do a lot of straight comedies. And even in the comedies he's in, he's always playing kind of like the straight man. 
But his timing is just perfect in some of these lines. There's a line towards the end of the movie where they're in that boardroom and he has called everyone together because he's trying to send his brother David off with Sabrina to Paris. And so uh, David's fiance is in the room and talking about how she bought these like, I don't know what it was, like these Hawaiian or Tahitian or something uh, cloths. And, mm-hmm. and then you just hear him mutter under his breath, I hope they're returnable. And it's just little moments like that. There's a great moment where after uh, William Holden's character sits on a champagne glass and gets glass all up in his butt, like, <laughs> they have to do they have to do surgery on him. And there's this great visual gag of Bogey gets a hammock made for him with a butt cut out of it so that his butt can sit down in the hole. And as he's helping William Holden over to the hammock, William Holden's like, you know, I've been trying to write a poem for Sabrina and I can't quite finish it. What rhymes with glass? And there, there's just this giant <laughs> like ass cut out of the hammock that they, <laughs> that's just lingering there. And Bogart's like, uh, how about alas? Yep. <laughs> there's, I, I mean, like I, I could go on and on, man. The lines in this movie are fantastic. Yeah. Or, or when uh, the father is talking to Linus. And Linus says something along the lines of like, it, like if you if you want her, just take her. Like this is the 20th century, and the dad goes, the 20th century. I could pick a better century out of a hat blindfolded. <laughs> and it's it's just it's clever, it's funny, and even in that, like there's a few really great little tiny monologues, especially by her dad, yeah, the the chauffeur Fairchild. Like when he's talking about democracy being a wickedly unfair thing. Mm-hmm. And what's the line after that about nobody poor? They they basically says like they never call anyone poor democratic for marrying rich. Yeah, they only call rich people democratic for marrying poor. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's like he just has some really insightful lines about the culture of financial stardom. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say, which is if you're anywhere on YouTube nowadays, you see all the financial bros out there. I'm like, I think Wilder would have something to say to them. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Well, and I think that's why this movie works on so many levels for me, because there is some some really biting satire and not even satire, but just kind of really withering observations about class in this movie. He doesn't go too far into it. And I think if he did, it would have taken away from the romance of it all. But there's a moment where it's it's when Audrey Hepburn first comes back from Paris and she's gotten her Cinderella makeover and she's dancing with William Holden out you know, behind the house at this party. And the mother of the family comes up and is just super dismissive to Sabrina. And she has this line where she says, oh, you'll have to come over and cook for us sometime. And Mm -hmm. it is like, I like as I as I watched that, I was like, you are the worst. (laughs) That's like her only real moment in the movie. And you're like, oh, you suck. Yeah, but it works. But I guess what I'm saying is I I think that there's different levels of comedy to this movie. If you want to look at it as kind of a dark comedy, there's dark comedy stuff in here. If you want to look at it as satire, there's satire in here. And then there's, you know, visual gags where a guy's butt is stuck in a hammock. Like it just there's a moment at the end of the movie where where Audrey Hepburn and Bogey are in his office suite and they decide not to go out to dinner. And she's going to cook for him because his office has a little kitchenette. And he has this throwaway line where he says, you know, one time my secretary tried to cook dinner for the board of directors and we all adjourned after the first the first item on the list and it passed unanimously. Mm-hmm. It's a diarrhea joke. Yeah. The dinner passed unanimously. Get like, it? 
I love it. I love that we have poop jokes in movies in 1954. Here, here's a question for you. The the capitalism speech that, that Linus gives when he's, you know what I'm talking about when he's talking to David? Uh, No, which one? So I'll give you some of the quote when he's talking about like, a new product has been found, something of use to the world. So a new industry moves into an undeveloped area, factories go mm-hmm. up, machines mm-hmm. are brought in and... And it ends with saying, you know, what's wrong with the kind of urge that gives people libraries, hospitals, baseball diamonds, and movies on a Saturday night? Do you think he's serious? Like, do you think Wilder is meaning that as a critique? Or I was just curious your feel on that line, because I don't know if I've ever heard out of Hollywood, which is, you know, famously left of center. I don't know if I've ever heard a more pro-capitalism speech. Yeah, that's a hard one because I don't think there's anything necessarily in that speech that Wilder would condemn. And especially like as an immigrant, like he as much as he kind of crapped on American culture a lot, like he bought into it a little bit. However, I do think you got to kind of trace the character's development through that movie, which is at the end of the movie, he cancels a 20 million dollar merger or tries to. Right. You know, and at the beginning of the movie, the way they introduce him is by saying that he was voted by his collegiate peers as most likely to leave his alma mater $50 million. Mm -hmm. So I do think that even though Bogey is trying to paint it in the most positive possible terms, the fact that he ends up also becoming a hopeless romantic means that, you know, Wilder doesn't ultimately see that as like the way to go. Yeah. Love wins out in the end, Bob. Mm. As it as it always does. As it always does in the movies. Uh, let's talk about performances, man. Where who do you want to start with? Do you want to start at the bottom with William Holden, or do you just want to start with Audrey? Let's start with Audrey. We've barely talked about her, and the movie's named after her. So this is, I mean, really early on in her film career. I talked about how she wins an Oscar for Roman Holiday, and then she makes this movie. And so Billy Wilder is working with William Holden, who wins the Best Actor Oscar in '53. And Audrey Hepburn, who wins the Best Actress Oscar in 53. And like, this is their big follow up. Mm -hmm. This is a huge deal, like this movie coming out when it did. And I think she is just as good here as she is in Roman Holiday. And I've seen a lot of people kind of comment on this movie that this seems much more slight and they don't give her as much to do. But I think it kind of underestimates who Audrey Hepburn is and her very specific appeal that a character as... I don't know, slight as Sabrina is, Mm -hmm. is given so many layers through this performance. I don't think there's anyone else in Hollywood in 1954 that could have pulled this role off. You could have tried to stick like a Grace Kelly in here, but Grace Kelly just doesn't seem like she would exude that sort of girlishness that this role calls for. Yeah, I was going to say, Grace Kelly is too polished mm -hmm. to play a chauffeur's daughter. Well, that's the great thing about Hepburn is like she... She looks incredible in this movie and she looks polished, but she's also able to walk that fine line of innocence and girlishness as well without making it seem demeaning either. And I think that's really the key here, because there's a way to play this that is like, I am ditzy. I you know what yeah. I mean? I'm I'm behaving as if I'm 12 and I'm 25. I think you really do get the sense that she's a 25 year old who still has a girlish crush on somebody, but that doesn't make her stupid. Yeah, 100 percent. Well, Mostly doesn't make her stupid. Oh, hot takes. She she tries to kill herself, Bob. Yeah, (laughs) I will say we talk about that. Yeah, you keep coming back to the suicide thing. It's it's rough, man. This is like ten minutes into the movie. This is a very weird 
statement for me to make, America. <laughs> but, you know, we've dealt with suicide and threatened suicide and attempted suicide in a good deal of Billy Wilder movies at this point. Yeah. And it's, I, it's definitely a uh, sub theme for him. I have to say, though, like. In a few instances, we've talked about how those scenes are supposed to be darkly funny. Not always, but in some of the instances they are. This is the only one where I feel like it really works on both levels, where there is a, mm. a level of funniness to it. Not that the I mean, the the botched suicide attempt itself is kind of funny, but especially just seeing her react the way a teenage girl would react, which mm -hmm. is like, I can't have this guy, so I'm going to kill myself. And then she writes this note, this suicide note that she thinks is like really nice and polished and then remembers, P.S., don't invite David to my funeral. And it just it has the energy of like, don't come in my room, mom. Yes, it's so great. And I think having those touches where, first of all, it's 10 minutes into the movie, you know, she's not going to kill herself. But I think it adds to the character a little bit. And so as <laughs> if I'm power ranking Billy Wilder's suicide attempts here, <laughs> this is this is probably and again, here's the weird quote. This is probably the most successful suicide attempt in Billy Wilder. <laughs> That's the one we need to pull for this. There, for the, there's the there's the clip for the there's episode. There's the folks. clip yep. for the episode. <laughs> Ranking Billy Wilder's suicide attempts. <laughs> Here's the thing. The only reason that her suicide attempt works in a in a cinematographic sense in this film is the fact that it actually ends up connecting her with Bogart, mm -hmm. whose character also tried, you know, thought about attempting suicide yep. in, you know, earlier in his life. Mm -hmm. And it it's one of the best written moments of connection I've ever seen in a rom-com where, you know, early in the film, she tries to kill herself and Humphrey clearly knows that she is trying to kill herself. And yet kind of gives her the out of, say, you know, like kind of making fun of her just a little bit and very gently. And it, it he does it in such a way that doesn't make sense at the time until you hit later in the movie and you find out that he was spurned by someone he loved once and he also thought about killing himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that like really draws the characters together in a way that is is kind of touching and, you know. It, it it's different than all of his other movies. I feel like all of his other suicide attempts are uh, don't necessarily add to the movie for me. Yeah, I think especially like Sunset Boulevard, that, that's a hard one for me to evaluate because that character is known for being overly dramatic anyway. And But even in the context of that movie, it's like, well, this came out of left field a little bit and it mm -hmm. doesn't always dramatically work for me. It worked in the apartment like it. The apartment. I think that is one of the most crucial elements of that story that Shirley MacLaine tries to kill herself. Um, and, you know, just as an aside, Brad, I think that I saw so many parallels between the way that Hepburn plays Sabrina and the way mm -hmm. Shirley MacLaine played Fran Kubelik in yeah. the apartment. Yeah. Even to the point where um, when she's getting very visibly hurt by things that are being said to her, she does the like almost like whisper like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm internalizing this. And that was something McLean did, you know, 10 years, sorry, seven years after this in the apartment. So I don't know if it's something that Wilder is specifically directing his female leads to behave that way. But I'll tell you what, man, it works really well. Yeah. And and if we can kind of pull back for half a second, I think it's fascinating that Wilder is talking about such a delicate subject in the 
you know, 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. Like, it's something that our society struggles to talk about in 2023. And so for Wilder to take on such a heavy subject so much earlier in American society, I I think it's really brave of him. And I, I guess I'm curious if you think he handles the subject well throughout his filmography. I mean, I think you have to remember that he kind of has one foot in the theater. And that's not to say that he was a theater writer, but a lot of his movies are adaptations of plays. And I think just on the stage, people love to kill themselves. Like, yeah, that, just, no, yeah, that's true. Um, so there, there is that element to it. But I think that he knows when to use it to really up the stakes of what's going on in his movies, whether it's for dramatic purposes or not, you know, in a movie like The Apartment. No one's going to get murdered. You're not going to have the double indemnity thing hanging over you. Right. But the fact that Fran Kubelik has been used and tossed around this boys club and then she tries to commit suicide. That's the moment where it clicks for Jack Lemmon that these are real humans that I'm like Mm -hmm. screwing with their lives right now. Yeah. And so I think Wilder knows when to use suicide and when to threaten suicide to up the stakes. And for the most part, it really, really works. Hmm. Well, I don't know how to transition to that from that into whiskey, but. uh... All right, let's press pause because we still have to talk about the two male leads of this movie. And I have lots of thoughts on both of them. And uh, from what we've said off air, Brad, it sounds like you do, too. Yeah. So let's yeah, let's do it. Let's press pause. Let's try this Johnny Walker blenders batch wine cask blend. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. Today we are drinking Johnny Walker Blender's Batch Wine Cask Blend, the greatest name for a whiskey that's ever been thought up yes. of. Yes. Uh, concise, I know, short, can, yeah, right to the to point. The, right to the point. <laughs> and I know absolutely nothing about it, Bob. Yeah, so here's what I know about it, Brad. I know that it was released in 2017 and that I believe it has now been discontinued. And so we picked this bottle up off the shelf in Ohio that they call Last Call because Ohio don't sell it no more. And uh, it was marked down. And I said, I like Johnny Walker. I like wine cask blends. Let's pick this up. I like whiskey that's cheap. You know? So here's the thing. Sometimes we will buy these kind of whiskeys because it's a win-win. Like it's it's cheap and it's discounted, but because it's been discounted, that means that you can look around at the stores around you where it is very likely to still be sold because this was not like a super high seller for Johnny Walker. If it was, they'd still be making it. And so you can usually find these things discounted if you just like are out and about and see one on the shelf. So it's kind of like we're going to give you a recommendation for a whiskey that no one will really ever get to try again, and you can be one of the last people to buy it at a really reasonable price. Yeah. If anything, this is kind of representative of last call type of whiskeys. Like, hey, go try them. It's a fun way to try different whiskeys that you might not normally gravitate towards at a cheaper price than they'd sell for normally. Yeah. All right. So uh, a little bit more about this. It's 80 proof. It is, again, it's Johnny Walker, but it's one of their cheaper blends. It's a bunch of blended scotch. The full name on the bottle, Johnny Walker, Blender's Batch, Wine Cask Blend, Blended Scotch Whiskey. That is the full name of this product. So Johnny Walker, back in 2017, launched this new line that they called Blender's Batch. And it was basically like, we're taking 
blended scotch whiskey and we're finishing it in a couple different things. So they did a wine cask finish, they did a rum cask finish, and then they did an espresso finished one as well. The wine cask finish one is super interesting, Brad, because they got our friend Andre Houston Mack to help do some promo for it. I don't think that he had any part in the production of it. But when I look online and I read notes about it, I have no idea how this was actually made. So one website says that it was blended whiskey that was then finished in over 50 different types of wine casks. Uh, And then I look at the tag on the bottle and it just says, uh, let's see. This is an experimental blend of grain and malt whiskeys, including some matured in wine casks. So that would suggest that a lot of what went into the blend, the blend happened after they already pulled it out of the wine casks and not before they put it into the wine casks. So I don't freaking know, man. It's cheap whiskey. It's blended scotch. (laughs) There's some sort of wine flavoring going on here. Let's dive into it. Yeah, on the nose here, it's a really interesting nose because you don't get as much of the barley as you normally get on a Mm. scotch. For me, this might be one of the most floral noses that I've ever gotten. Like, it it just reminds me almost of like a white wine and peaches, maybe. It's a little bit light, fruity. Uh, Yeah, almost like, like peaches and cream, maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Where are you at? Yeah, I like it. It has the really bright notes that we get on Irish whiskey and blended scotch a lot of the times with not much of the the malt underlying it and definitely not any of that sort of like grain forwardness that we usually get with cheap whiskeys. It's really Mm -hmm. just bright and fruity. And to me, it smells like. Do you remember the little boxes of raisins that we would get in our lunch boxes as kids? Like yeah. cardboard boxes that you would have to pry open with your bare little fingers. It smells <laughs> like the inside of one of those boxes. It smells like a box of raisins or like a fresh cracked thing of prunes. It is really, really strongly uh, dried fruit. And I like it a lot, man. I'm actually going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. Yeah, I, I'm in a similar place, a little cooler than you, but I'll, I'll give it a seven out of ten. The longer I sit with it, the more I do get a few more traditional like honey notes kind of coming through, mm-hmm. which I'm I make me excited. But yeah, we'll see. Let's let's get into the palette. So I uh, I took a swig here and I'll say this much about it. It is really, really thin, like it is very watery and really, really light on the palate. However, it has like a, a pretty strong smokiness to it. It's not peat, but it's almost like cigarette ash smoke. And I don't get a ton of fruit. I get a little bit of like creaminess, a little bit of honey on this, but not a ton of fruit notes and certainly no wine notes on this. I'm actually pretty disappointed in this palette, Brad. Huh. I think maybe on the finish, I start to get a little bit of that cigarette ash you're talking about. Mm -hmm. For me, mid palette, I get a little bit of raspberry. The peaches flavor has stuck around from the nose, but it's definitely very light. Honestly, this kind of reminds me of like a really delicate white wine. I don't know, like a Sauvignon Blanc type of feel. Hmm. It's very light, very airy. And I guess, I don't know, I'm so used to finishing whiskeys in red wines and cabs and, you know, Pinot Noirs and things like that. I think that they used white wine in this. Uh, sorry, not that they blended white wine in. I think they used white wine casks in this. Like, there's just too much going on that's light and airy and 
floral for me to think that this has a lot of red wine influence. You know, I don't I'm not going to disagree with you there. And you certainly know wine better than I do. But I think that the grain on this manifests in like a very immediately bitter way. Like I just took a second sip of it. And I mean, like tip of my tongue. It's like, hey, I'm going to put this cigarette out on your tongue now. It's like it's really grain forward. It tastes young. It tastes harsh, not astringent, but like it just doesn't have a like a well-roundedness to it. And any of that sort of light effervescence that we that I kind of pick up on it, like almost like a a champagne kind of uh, feel to this is immediately just like stomped out by this overbearingly bitter smokiness, too. I don't like this, man. I'm going to give it a five out of ten on the taste. Huh? Yeah. For me, I actually kind of like the palate. It's light and airy. I'm down with it. I'll, I'll give it a seven and a half out of ten on the palate. All right, that takes us to finish. I think the finish is better than the palate is, but that's because it's a really short finish. Um, it's an 80 proof whiskey that the the things that stick around on your palate, I think, are those lighter, brighter white wine notes. I do think there is a sense of like effervescence here. It is for me, it's a little bit closer to a drier white wine on the finish than it is a sweet one. And I don't mind it, but it's 80 proof. It's thin, not much left on the palate. I think I'm impressed by that because I didn't like the palette, but I don't know that this is an objectively good finish. I'll just give it a six out of 10. Yeah, I'll give it a six and a half. It comes down a little bit on the finish. The cigarette ash comes through at the end, which I'm not a fan of, and it it just loses a lot of its flavor Mm -hmm. at the end. So six and a half for me on the finish. Balance wise, I think I'll give this a six out of 10. It's not an incredibly well-balanced whiskey. It definitely has some sharp edges that, I don't know, normally blending curves off, Yeah, but it didn't here. Yeah, I guess I'll do the same, 6 out of 10. I, I kind of want to give it lower than that because from the nose to the immediate harsh, strong drop-off of the palate, I mean, it was like drastic for me. Bob, did you know that you could give it a lower score than six? <laughs> That uh, that is that is well within your purview. I think because I know that it is a cheap whiskey, I'm not going to give it lower than a six. But when it comes to value, this is where things get tricky, because if you can still find it at the recommended price, which I think I picked this up for like twenty five dollars. I don't know what SRP on this is. Let's like let's just say for the sake of argument, Brad, that MSRP on this was like. I don't know, forty dollars. Well, here's the thing. I, I'm looking. I've looked on a few review websites, and one of them says, and I'm quoting. And the best part, it's going for a bargain price of sixty nine dollars. Nice. We suggest filing shopping carts with them, or f- <laughs> sorry, filling. We suggest <laughs> filling shopping carts with them. So that's really funny because I'm looking on Total Wine's website, and Total Wine is one of the biggest, you know, retail stores in America that sells liquor, and they have it listed at twenty five ninety nine. Now, again, they're not carrying it anymore because it's discontinued, but they sold it at twenty five, and that's around what I got it for on the last call. So I have no idea what to price this at, Brad. It, you're seeing it SRP for it at sixty something dollars. I'm seeing SRP on this at twenty six dollars. Let's just call it forty dollars. Because my whole point was going to be when you Google it now, you can't get it cheaper than like $70. So you would have Mm. to find this in the wild to make it a bargain anyway. 
And yeah. I think even at $40, this is not a good value. I appreciate the craft that went into it, but let's be frank here. It's not like they're doing this with like a really small batch. This is just mm -hmm. huge vats of whiskey that they are using tons and tons and tons of casks of wine. And because they're using so many casks of wine to finish it in, they're hoping that they can blend out any imperfections there too. This mm -hmm. is, you know, this is a conglomerate we're talking about. Uh, I'm going to give it a two out of 10 on value. Uh, I think I'll give it a four out of 10. I, I think that what's in the bottle is like decent scotch. It's okay. Mm. Um, it may be just barely above average. So I'll, I'll give it a four out of 10 on value. I, I don't think it's the worst thing you could buy, but it's definitely below average on value. Well, I am for some reason coming out slightly above average, not even above average. I'm above the midway point on my final score here. I'm at a 26.5 out of 50. Brad, what are you coming out to? Uh, I'm a little higher. I'm a, a 31 out of 50. Wow, a 31. Okay. So that brings us to a 57.5 out of 100 or a 28.75 out of 50. I do not recommend buying. I do not recommend trying. I can see why this was discontinued. And I don't mean to be harsh <laughs> here because like, you know, typically, Brad, we don't we don't look down on, we don't talk crap about whiskeys on this podcast, but I just don't think this is good. And like it, it makes a lot of sense why this is not being carried anymore. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I'm with you. I like, I think this is okay. It's fine. I, I wouldn't recommend getting it unless if you could get it for 25 bucks, I'd say go for it. But where it's at now, unless you're like a big Johnny Walker stan and you just want to try all their stuff, then like, sure, go for it. But if that's the case, you've probably already tried it. So, all right, yeah. Brad. Well, I tried to pair this up with something like fun and bubbly to go with Sabrina, but uh, I have once again fallen right on my face. So I was going to say, let's just talk about Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, man. Let's get back into talking about Sabrina. <laughs> what do you say? Let's get to it. So here's the deal, everybody. We just absolutely love producing as much content as possible for Film and Whiskey Nation. But if our regular episodes aren't enough for you, then you can head on over to patreon.com slash filmwhiskey, sign up for one of our memberships, and you will get a slew of extra content for your listening pleasure. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. All right, everybody, that was Johnny Walker something, something, something wine. <laughs> That's it. it. And that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, I that. did not like that whiskey, Brad. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. I think uh, I'm finally getting comfortable enough. You know, it's season seven of the podcast where I'm like, I can say that I didn't like something and that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that this brand will never sponsor us or work with us. Like, and even if they do, like the thing about it is Johnny Walker is not hurting because I said I don't like one of these no. whiskeys. No, are, are they a Diageo brand? Uh, I think so. They're yeah. like one of the big. Yeah, they're I don't know, man. They they might be coming after us with legal action. Some some libel <laughs> they right are there. The, they are the Disney Corporation of whiskey. <laughs> oh man. Well, putting that fiasco behind us, let's talk about Canada's favorite segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is gonna try to stump you ball to our right and what is wrong. Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact, typically about the making of this movie, one of which is a complete lie and fabrication on his part. And it's my job to figure out which one is the falsehood. 
Brad, I'm very excited for this because I don't know a ton about the making of Sabrina. I came straight down to your house this morning before I got a chance to look at all the Billy Wilder books I checked out of the library. So I don't really have a ton of knowledge about this, and I'm going to be winging it. That's good to hear, Bob, because I have three of the longest facts I have ever (laughs) pulled out for two facts in a falsehood history. All right, man. Let's hear them. Fact number one, Humphrey Bogart was a last minute replacement for, this is my personal injection, my favorite actor, Cary Grant. Supposedly, Grant rejected the part because he did not want to carry an umbrella on screen. Bogart and William Holden couldn't stand each other. Bogart also disapproved of Audrey Hepburn as he preferred his wife, Lauren Bacall, in the role. While Holden fell in love with Audrey, Bogart was paid $300,000 to do the movie. Holden was paid $150,000. And in the most sexist thing I've ever heard, all at least today, Hepburn was paid $15,000. Wow. Asked how he liked working with Hepburn, Bogart replied, it's okay if you don't mind a few dozen takes. Dang. That's fact number one. Okay. Fact number two, William Holden, tired of working with Billy Wilder after Sunset Boulevard and Stalag 17, leaned into his Playboy character and would show up late to set, ad-lib his lines, and be a general nuisance. This led to an extended period of disconnect between the two until they collaborated one last time in 1978's Fedora. Fact number three, although Hubert de Givenchy... And I know I'm saying that wrong. Givenchy. Givenchy. Thank you, Denny. Uh, He provided Audrey Hepburn's wardrobe. Edith Head won the Oscar for Best Costumes, as Givenchy is uncredited. Head, as the film's official costume designer, was given credit for the costumes, although the Academy's votes were obviously for Hepburn's attire. Head did not refuse the Oscar. In a 1974 interview, she stated that she was responsible for creating the dresses with some inspiration from Given Givenchy, Givenchy, I'm just going to keep butchering it, uh, designs that Hepburn liked, but that she made important changes and the dresses were not by Givenchy. After her death, though, Givenchy stated that Sabrina's iconic black cocktail dress was produced at Paramount under head supervision, but it was 100% his design. Brad, like you, I did have time to peruse the Sabrina Wikipedia page. Mm. And so... I know that number three is true. However, Mm. let me ask you this before I make a final decision here. Okay. These were very long facts. Yes. Now, you would not do such a thing as to, like, change one minute detail. Like, the – the entire basis of the fact would be false, right? Yes. The the one that I made up is completely made up. Okay. Yeah. Here's here's a little background. Uh, I do not look up a single fact about the movie – before I write my falsehood. No. Yeah. Really? 100%. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's that's news to me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's what I'll say. Uh, because I did peruse the Wikipedia page, I know that the thing about Edith Head, who is perhaps the most iconic costume designer in Hollywood history, mm-hmm. and Givenchy, who is uh, one of the most iconic haute couture designers in Parisian history, I know that's a fact. I know number one for the most for the most part, is a fact. I didn't know about the quote that uh, Humphrey Bogart said, but Humphrey Bogart was generally kind of a grump on this set and didn't get along with Wilder and thought that Hepburn was super inexperienced and kind of amateurish and didn't apologize until years later 
uh, about what happened on set here and said, basically, I was going through some issues, issues in my personal life. This may have been around the time that Bogart found out he had cancer because he dies like three years after this. Hmm. So I know that for the most part, number one is a fact. I'm going to go ahead and say number two is the falsehood. I had no idea about the William Holden thing, and it, it definitely hasn't come up in anything I've read so far. So I'm going to go ahead and say that Holden and Wilder were boys all the way through to 1978. And I'll say two is the falsehood. Bob, I love that you opened this segment with, I haven't read a single thing about this movie. And then you proceeded to say, but based on the things I have read about the movie, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say two is the falsehood. Right. Uh, I'm going to say that you are a shyster and mm. that you don't deserve this win. So here's, first of all, I mean, I'm allowed to read things about the making of the movie. Are you before, though? Before we record. Yeah. Let me, let me add a wrinkle to this. <laughs> when I read a Wikipedia page and they state facts about a movie, I generally take those to be like the most well-known facts about the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, hey, did you know that James Cameron invented new technology to make Avatar? Huh? And so then if you come in and you're like, fact number one, James Cameron invented new tech. Like, that's common knowledge, my guy. I did not read the Wikipedia page, Bob. <laughs> okay. Well, I did. And they were on there. And so I will claim my victory. We are saying that number two is the falsehood, right? Yeah, it's the falsehood. I get a victory. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> All right. Talk to me about William Holden and... Uh, our boy Bogey. Who do you want to start with? Uh, let's talk about Humphrey. Let's do it. Because I don't think you're a big fan of him in this movie. I think I didn't. Once again, I didn't read this fact till later. I think Cary Grant would have been a million times better of a choice hmm. for this role. You know, I weirdly disagree. I think that Cary Grant would have given the movie a much more lighthearted energy all the way through. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he would have been able to balance the the romance and the darker aspects as well as Bogey does here. Bogey, like the thing that Humphrey Bogart is doing in this movie is so similar to the way he played Rick in Casablanca. That super guarded emotion, almost emotionless. But then you find out what's driving his hurt. And I think it works so, so well. I think the thing, if there's anything we really need to talk about, it's the age gap because it's yeah. so apparent because, you know, Bogey's over 50 years old and he looks over 50 years old in this movie. And Audrey Hepburn is. Although, according to Network, that's just a middle aged man. That's true. <laughs> and Hepburn's like 25, but playing 17. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, personality 100%. wise. So here's what I'll say. I was so excited to see a movie with Humphrey Bogart in it again because we haven't watched a movie with him in it since The African Queen. And then, you know, the two that we did back in like season one and two. And so it's been a long time since we've had Bogart on screen. And I got to say, man, I haven't watched a Humphrey Bogart movie in a long time. The guy is just electric. And there's yeah. a scene where, you know, it's the scene where they're in his office suite and she finds out that he's basically been screwing her over. And it's a two shot, a medium shot with both of them in it. And she's crying and facing away from him. And he's behind her and just staring at the back of her head. And darned if this guy, Humphrey Bogart, didn't pull my entire gaze away from Audrey Hepburn. And all he was doing was looking at the back of her head. And I kind of realized, I think the superpower of Bogart as a romantic lead, because it doesn't make sense that this guy would be a romantic lead. Like he's not conventionally attractive. He's like five foot nothing. And he, he looks like 
you know, he was made out of wax and got melted a little bit. Like, it's just, it doesn't make sense. But he has this ability in his scenes with Audrey Hepburn to, I think better than any other actor, to make you feel like he is paying complete and total attention to you. The way he locks in on his co-stars, it's like he's capable of creating chemistry with almost anybody, like male, female. I'm not just talking romantic chemistry, but like he pulls you in as a viewer in a way that very, very few other actors have ever been able to accomplish. And I think that says a lot about him because there's nothing in this character or in him as a person that would make you think, yes, this man is clearly romantically compatible with Audrey Hepburn. And darned if I didn't buy it by the end of the movie. And that I think that for me is the issue. I never bought it. Hmm. I never bought that he actually fell in love with her. And I, I don't know if it's Humphrey Bogart the Grump who wished that Lauren Bacall was his co-lead mm-hmm. bleeding through into his performance. But I never once believed that he actually fell in love with her or that she actually fell in love with him. And I think that's the crux for me as to why this movie didn't quite work as well for me as it used to. Uh, There's still so much to love about this movie, but I don't think that there's enough chemistry between Bogart and Hepburn. Man. Well, I disagree. And you're wrong. (laughs) So let's talk William Holden, because I think if there's anyone who kind of gets shafted by this movie a little bit, it's William Holden. Although I will say, back to the structure thing, I love that this movie basically puts mega star Humphrey Bogart on the complete back burner until like the one hour mark. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, all right, now it's time for William Holden to take a backseat to this guy. But it never feels forced to me. Like, it's just like, hey, we're going to introduce this new character and we're going to let this love triangle develop really organically. And I love that they they aren't constantly undercutting the dramatic stakes of Bogart by bringing William Holden into it a bunch. Like he comes back in a few scenes, but then he's not really a huge fixture in the movie until the end of the movie again. I guess, Brad, I'm wondering like, A, what did you think of his performance? But B, also knowing that he's coming off of a best actor win and then he's essentially playing like third fiddle to Hepburn and Bogart here. What do you make of that? I think that Holden is the slapstick comedy in this film Mm -hmm. and it just feels weird coming off of sunset and stalag Mm -hmm. like he he has such a i don't know vaporous role where he's just kind of floating around and i don't know he just doesn't have a lot of substance to him throughout the film even at the end like when he gets punched by bogart and he like does a reverse somersault onto the table and like kicks his legs out and he's like, you're in love with her. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't feel real enough. And and I, I don't know if I'm asking for too much out of a rom-com, but it feels like even at the end, he just is kind of ethereal and not a real person in a way that would make you understand why Sabrina would love him. And, you know, maybe that's kind of the whole point is that she falls out of love with him because he doesn't have any substance. But at at the very least, I I thought he was fine. It's just so different than the two movies we just watched him in that it it felt jarring, I guess. First thing I noticed about William Holden in this movie is that he's much more blonde than he was in either of the first two movies. Yes, he looks so much different. They they younged him up a little bit, (laughs) which I'm cool with. 
he reminded me in his demeanor and in his look because of the blonde wig or dye or whatever they did. He reminded me so much of the way that Joseph Cotton played Orson Welles' best friend in Citizen Kane. Yes, I was literally thinking the exact same thing. Okay, here's the crazy thing, right? So I didn't know anything about this. After I watched the movie and I started reading on Wikipedia and I saw about, you know, Sabrina Fair. Because you didn't read anything about the film. Not before I watched it. Yeah, no, 100%. So I clicked I clicked on the Wikipedia page to Sabrina Fair, the play this was based on. Guess who starred in mm. the play Sabrina Fair? Joseph Orson Cotton. Wells. No, Joseph Cotton. But he was playing. <laughs> stop it. But he was playing the Bogart character in that movie oh. or in that play because, you know, he's he's older at that point. But it's just crazy to me because I was like, man, I wonder what this would have been like if it was Joseph Cotton. And lo and behold, Joseph Cotton had his fingerprints all over this <laughs> in some ways. That's incredible. Yeah, I, I really love that because I'm I'm with you. He, I think it's his hair and the way he talks that just comes across so much like Cotton's performance mm-hmm. in Kane. I honestly think this might be my favorite of the three William Holden performances we've looked at the last three weeks. I, I, it's just nice to see him be a little more loose and a, like kind of goofy, not even just yeah goofy too, but like I feel like Sunset Boulevard could have used an ounce of charm. And yeah. I was left wondering, like, does William Holden just not have a lot of charm? And in this movie, it's like, oh, he totally did. They just didn't use it <laughs> in Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, I think that his charm works here. And that like that's the one reason I like him is because he is so charming mm-hmm. throughout. But like I said, I just wish his character had a little more depth to it. But I think it's a good performance. I think I like him a little more in Stalag 17. But I like him in both of these films for different reasons. All right. So before we get out of here, let's give some final thoughts on Billy Wilder as a director across these three movies, because I'm looking at his filmography here. And, um, oh, of course, I closed out the tab, Brad, but <laughs> I'm going to try to rattle these off from the top of my head. Just from 1950 to 1960, he does Sunset Boulevard. He does a movie called Ace in the Hole, which is now considered a classic. Stalag 17, uh, Sabrina. He does The Seven Year Itch with Marilyn Monroe. He does, I think, three movies in 1957, one of which is Witness for the Prosecution, which gets nominated for Best Picture. He does Some Like It Hot, and then he closes it out in 1960 with The Apartment. Dude. I think between 1950 and 1960, he's nominated for Best Director five times. Like, what a freaking run, man. Yeah, I was going to say, has has Spielberg or Scorsese ever come close to a run like that? I don't think in, like, one decade anyone, you know, they're... You'd have to go back to classic Hollywood to find someone nominated five times in a decade. That's crazy. I think Coppola did it four times in the 70s, but five is crazy. Yeah, that's nutty, man. He truly is one of the greatest directors of all time. And I'm really thankful that we chose these three movies. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's important we got Sunset Boulevard out of the way. And then, you know, Stalag 17 and now Sabrina, I think they show his versatility in in really cool ways. I totally agree, man. All right. It's time for us to get into our last few segments of the day. And the first of which is one that we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode. So thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's It's the the final final segment segment of the day. day. Now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the show where we pick the perfect pairing to go with this movie to create a double feature. Brad, I have not given this one second of thought before right now. 
So I'm hoping you have, because I'm going to let you speak while I try to think. I sure have, Bob. I am going to pick a older rom-com from 1940. I think that this would pair incredibly well with the Philadelphia story. Hmm. You know, I was thinking about the Philadelphia story when I brought up the whole William Holden thing. Because very famously, Jimmy Stewart does not win the Oscar in 39 for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Mm -hmm. And then he makes the Philadelphia story where he's very clearly the third banana in that movie and wins the Oscar for best actor. And it's kind of inverted here where Holden wins for Stalag 17, but then goes and makes a romantic comedy the next year where he's basically playing the Jimmy Stewart character. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a great pairing, man. Yeah. I I think that both movies have a lot of spunk and just fun there's just a lot of life in both of the movies Mm -hmm. and both of them have absolutely incredible casts so i i think philadelphia story is an easy one if you're looking for just some really fun witty older movies with great dialogue i don't think you could go wrong with philadelphia story and sabrina i'm kind of in between two movies for mine one of them would be the 1957 musical funny face that Audrey Hepburn makes with Fred Astaire. Mm -hmm. And it's because there's a ton of Paris in that movie and it's romanticizing Paris and it's Audrey Hepburn. I think you can never get enough Audrey Hepburn. Yes. However, I honestly think I'm going to go the more conventional route here and just pair this up with the apartment. I think that there are similar themes across the two. One of them keeps its foot more firmly planted in the lighter side of things. And one of them keeps its foot more firmly planted in the dramatic side of things. But in a lot of ways, I do think these are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I think that's a great pairing. Uh, I need to revisit the apartment sometime, man. It's so good, man. It's it's such an incredible movie that I haven't watched since we did it for the podcast. So I'm going to put that on the list of all 40 other movies I want to <laughs> revisit. <laughs> I have finally converted you. Oh, man. All right. So let's give this movie some scores. Brad, like I said... You know, I put this movie on the list and really didn't give it a second thought. I have not watched it in almost 20 years. I was not expecting to love it as much as I did. But in I, I'm kind of like basking in the glow of this movie right now. <laughs> Maybe a few months from now, I'll want to revisit it and give it a lower score. But as of right now, I'm going to give this movie my first 10 out of 10 on the season. Wow. I, that is, hey, this is like a this might be the most rare occurrence a beloved Brad childhood movie that Bob is higher on than me. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to give this an eight and a half. I like, I love it. It's fun. It's lighthearted. There's a lot of great dialogue, but in the, at the end of the day, I just don't buy the romantic premise, which makes it hard to give a rom-com a nine or higher. So I like, I love this movie. I highly recommend that people go see it. It is charming and funny. Like that moment, this is this is an example of how acting can elevate a movie. The lines between David and Sabrina when he drives her back from the the train station and they pull in and she goes, this is my place. And he goes, this isn't your place. And she goes, yes, it is. And he goes, well, we're neighbors then. And the way she says, hi, neighbor is just perfect. And it's taking a really just nonsensical script and elevating it to a point where you're like, that. That's that's why we have movie stars. 
So it, this isn't me bashing the movie at all. It's just me saying that there's parts of it I'm not down with. This, this is an incredible movie, Bob, and I absolutely love it. All right, so there you have it. We are coming out to a 9.25 out of 10 on average, but we want to know what you think. I'm really excited to see if people have seen this movie, Brad, because it is a rom-com. I imagine some people may have seen it over and against movies like Stalag 17. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you think of this movie in comparison to your other favorite romantic comedies. And and don't watch the 1995 version. <laughs> it, it's like fine, but it's it's nowhere near the original. You know, the crazy thing is like, Greg Kinnear plays the William Holden character in that movie. He mm-hmm. actually looks a lot like William Holden. Yes. I can see that. Yeah, he does. Using Harrison Ford as the Bogart doesn't make sense because Harrison Ford is a he's a sex symbol in his own right. And he has a very particular appeal. I don't think he's a Bogart guy. That's interesting. I actually think Harrison is the only good thing about that. Movie. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah, I, I, I've seen it once because I liked Sabrina growing up. And I think Harrison Ford is like the only thing that does work in that film. Uh, listen, I like I'm always down to watch a Harrison Ford movie. It's just interesting to me that they looked at it and they said, like, who's the modern day Bogart? Harrison Ford. <laughs> anyway. All right. Let us know what you think of both of these movies. You can find us on our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok at Film Whiskey. Or jump onto our Discord. We are on there every single day talking to you guys, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So if you want to join the conversation, you can find a link to our Discord page at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, we are pivoting into a completely different director. We're going to be looking at three films from the Oscar winner, Catherine Bigelow. And we're kicking it off with the 2009 Best Picture winner, The Hurt Locker. We'll see you next week for that. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Next time.